let's pray and let's go to the scriptures together on uh, another installment of our series in Faithful Presence. Father, thank you so much today that you have revealed your heart, you've revealed your activity in so many ways already. Father, I thank you for the many ways that you have already spoken and the, the many ways that you've already healed, the many ways that you have already reconciled or brought peace, brought direction. Father, we thank you today for the way that your spirit moves and operates when the people of God gather together in the presence of God around the throne and the table of the Lord. Lord, we're grateful. And we acknowledge that you are here, for you have invited us to come. Lord, we ask that you would help us to discern the presence and the activity of God. It's so easy to do that here, Lord, when all of our attention and all of our focus is on you. When we sing songs that magnify your character, it helps us to discern and become cognizant, to become familiar with how your spirit moves and operates. And Lord, we don't want to just keep that here. We want to be emboldened, empowered, encouraged, edified, inspired to be sent out into a lost, into a damaged, into a broken world where we can carry the life and the power and the message of the gospel to the world around us, to discern where you are at work and those that we are with. We ask that you would do those things today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 11. I had some fresh downloads that happened in the middle of our our worship set that I want to just uh, impart here very quickly, and, and I'm going to share a little bit of a context here. So for those of you who were out last Sunday, oh, you missed a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised that uh, you, you guys are still here today. You guys are awesome. I, I want to I teach you here for a few minutes uh, about various contexts and various situations in, in which uh, the pastoral and particularly prophetic elements within the pastoral operate in a local church context. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 11 says, if we can throw that up on the screen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work the visuals, guys, today. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So one of my primary jobs in whichever of these five functions, offices, gifts, there's a number of different nuances that uh, both practitioners and scholars like to weave into this, uh, these fivefold, the fivefold dimension of Christ functioning within his body. So there is a commission, there is a job description that I have, and those who function vocationally as, as I function in this house, and that is to equip you, that is to arm you, it is to help you to not just live a good Christian life, It is to equip you for fruitfulness and for functional, effective ministry in your field, your sphere of influence. 
Every single one of us are called to different spheres of influence. Some of you are students right now. Some of you are young professionals, young creatives. Some of you are people that serve on our military basis. That is the field that God has called you to, at least for this season and stage of your life. And our job, part of the job, both biblically and and also missionally that, that we have devised is that we want to help awaken you to the things of God so that then you can carry a spirit and a message of awakening to the people that are around you. And all that simply means is that you're, you're able to engage the people that do not know Christ in an incarnational manner, in a manner that is of their language, of their culture, of their understanding, And sometimes that process is very slow. Sometimes that process is very incremental. Sometimes it happens by way of just faithfully and consistently garnering trust with people that either do not know you, they're wary of the church, or they're against God. It's our job to equip you, to outfit you, to give you the right weaponry in the spirit and also in the natural. Uh, Reading on, it says, to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, so that we may be strengthened, that we may be edified. And this process will continue, it says right here in verse 13, until we all reach unity. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. One of the objectives of the church, the visible, local fellowship of the people of God, one of the objectives that we have as a people is not just to tell you things that you want to hear. Scripture talks about playing to the the itching ears. Um, Later on, we're going to read right here where it talks about when we only tell people the things that they desire to hear, it actually reproduces in us a state of childishness, a state of immaturity, whereby then we actually condition ourselves to only listen to those things that feel good, to only uh, welcome those things that sound like or look like things that we want to ingest. Are, Are you with me this morning? And if we do not practice the discipline of seeking the whole counsel of the scripture, which implies things that we don't intuitively like to listen to, if we don't do that, the scriptures are very clear here that we will not grow up, that we will not become mature, that we will not be built up into the unity of the faith, which is one of the many objectives that a local people have. So our, our responsibility in our preaching, in our teaching, in our structuring, in our evangelism, in our life groups, in our men's and women's ministries, in our youth and young adults, and all the many things that are happening, central to those many things is this imperative. We must grow up. Now, we can't force growth, but we also can't lower the standards so low that we're not being challenged to grow in Christ and grow in his word. You know, when Jesus called his disciples, and you can find this in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus called his disciples, 
the very day that he called them to leave their responsibility, the very day that he called them to leave their jobs, leave their vocation, and it looked a little bit different for each of the disciples that Jesus called. But we find in Matthew chapter 4, when he calls James and John, he says, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. Now the implication here is that in following Jesus, we will be made or we will be formed into something that we are not currently, which implies change and it implies growth. Let's keep reading here, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. It says we will no longer be infants. The implication here is that at some point of our journey, we are infants. And there's nothing more dangerous in the Christian life to assume that you are an adult when you really are a child. You know, any of you guys who like to scuffle with your kids, you know that kids who are seven or eight or even 15, I'm just, I'm just thinking about my, my good friend Josh here. Yeah, Josh is a good basketball player, and, and Josh likes to challenge me from time to time. Josh likes to assume in his head that, that he can beat pastor, not knowing that there are years of hard work that's been invested into the asphalt and years of wisdom and experience and, and not realizing that it's not just about uh, how, how athletic you are, but sometimes it's about how smart you play the game. Can, can I get a little help over here, Josh? <laughs> You know, I like to scuffle with my boys and, uh, and, and they like to get a little too big for their britches. They forget that they're three or that they're seven years old. And sometimes in the spirit, that's us. That's us. And we, we assume that we're a little bit older than we are. Dan calls this term precocious. My, my little girl, you know, when she, she car- the way she carries herself and the way she talks to others, it, it's, she's very precocious. She, she kind of carries herself like she's 30 when she was three. And there is just something about that that's cute, but then when you're actually 30 and you're still acting like you're three, it's not cute anymore. No, Paul is encouraging us. He's saying, there, there was a, there's, this is a journey. This is a journey of growth. This is a journey of maturity, which necessitates a humility. It necessitates a humility. He says here that infants, one of the things that characterizes infants is that they're tossed back and forth by the waves. Another way that we could say this is that infants in the spirit or infants in Christianity, they're very motivated by fads and trends. I want you to look at that. They're very motivated by what's exciting in the moment. They're very motivated by the new. Now, I gotta be very, very careful here because I'm not speaking against things in God that are new. But I am saying that when we've not reached a place of maturity and rootedness and groundedness, and when we, when we base our maturity in experiences alone, we will be prone to just going to where we can have those same kinds of experiences. Are are we together on this? And so when we base our spiritual maturity on experience alone, it actually propagates an immaturity 
in the Lord. There are some things in faith that are beyond our experience. That's why they're called faith and trust and obedience. We may not feel like obeying. We may not feel like giving, like witnessing, like worshiping, like serving. But we do those things out of faithful and humble and trusting obedience to God. And when we do those things, we grow up. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. Now look at that. When we learn how to speak the truth in love, we will grow. We will grow. One of the things that hinders our maturity is our inability or our refusal to have difficult conversations to have hard conversations, to express our feelings, our thoughts, our perspectives on an issue, and to listen to someone who has a perspective that is different than our own in God, in the scriptures, or even outside of God or outside of the scriptures. Maturity is the ability to listen and to hear the variety of perspectives that are around us without shooting them down or without getting shut down. So instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him. I love that, in every respect, and he leaves that wide open. So it's a very multifaceted ordeal here. In every respect, to not just be mature in one area of our lives, to not just be mature intellectually and be immature emotionally, to not just be mature biblically, but to be immature experientially. We want to be mature in every respect of our lives as people, individuals, and as a people, a corporate body known as the church. Look at 16. So for from him, the whole body joined, held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up. It builds itself up. Do you know what God's design is for us to grow? God's design for us to grow, according to Ephesians 4 verse 16, is that we stay in covenantal relationship in God one with another. God's design for our growth, I mean, look at it right here. From the whole body, when we stay joined, when we stay connected, when we stay open in our heart, when we stay held together by every supporting ligament, we will grow and we will build ourselves up in Christ, in Christ. I see all these things to say, and we really could spend weeks just on Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Those verses are so pregnant, so powerful. But I, I say these things to lay a little bit of a context for the things that were shared and the things that were spoken last week, because I would put last week's message in the category probably of, of correction. There, there was an element of correction that was being given to the house. And so I want to pastor that here for a few minutes. Number one, I want to say that there is a corrective element to the word of God. There is a correcting element. And we can find this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 
2 Timothy 3.16 says, For we know that the word of God is God-breathed. It's inspired. It is, it is put, it was formed uh, by the movement of the Holy Spirit throughout centuries and centuries and centuries of time to then form what we call this is the word of God. So 2 Timothy 3.16 then says, it is profitable, it is useful, and take a look at the, the categories here of how and where the word of God is useful for. For number one, teaching. Number two, for rebuking. For number three, correcting. And number four, training in righteousness. All four of these words have a very confrontive, they have a very formative, they have a very, uh, imp it's, it's implied here that the word of God is used to help us grow and to become something that we are not already, okay? The word of God was not designed for us to justify and to validate our own opinions on a matter. The word of God was designed for us to conform to the image of Jesus by way of the revealed heart and character and nature and will of God. So we should never make this word bend to us. We should say, Lord, what in my life do you want to bend to your word? What in the way that I think in our mindsets, in our worldview, what is it in my attitude that needs to conform to the attitude of Christ? What is it on a heart level that I'm not even aware is inside of me that needs to change and conform to the image of Christ that you reveal to me through your word? So number one, there is a corrective element to the word of God. There is a corrective element to the life of following Christ. If you follow Christ, you will be confronted by Jesus and by his spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a way of rebuking me in, a, in, 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 his, in, the, in the most brilliant way. Sometimes he's a smart aleck with me. Anybody ever experienced that where the Holy Ghost will say something to you and it's almost like through your own humor? Or, um, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times the Holy Ghost would rebuke me with a question or with, you know, a, a snarky question where he'd go, oh, is that so? And I immediately knew that what I just said was way out of line. Sometimes he'll do it by just repeating back to me a statement that I had made before that was off kilter. He'll just repeat it back. Sometimes he will just, he will flat out say, son, you are wrong. You need to stop this. And it's never with a hint of condemnation. It is never with an ounce of condemnation where, where I walk away and I don't feel like a loved, beloved, uh, 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 adored son of God. That's how you know whether or not you're hearing conviction from the Holy Spirit or whether or not you're hearing condemnation. Condemnation will leave you with no escape route. Condemnation will say you are bad and there is no answer to this. Condemnation will only focus on the negative. Condemnation will never take you to the redemptive power in Christ to change. 
But the conviction of the Holy Spirit will always lead us to transformation. It will not allow us to stay in that place of wrong thinking or wrong attitude or wrong behavior. So in following Christ, we need to understand that we will experience the corrective voice of God. Look at Matthew chapter, six, uh, Matthew chapter 18. Did I say 18? I, I, I meant verse 16, chapter 16. So in Matthew chapter 16, many of you know, some of you know the background of this story, but uh, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, and, and he has a shining moment. He has a moment where uh, he hears something prophetically, and he announces that to Jesus in response to a question that Jesus asked. And the question very simply was, who do people say that I am? And, G, uh, and Peter, by way of revelation, by the, by the movement of the Holy Spirit in and upon Peter's life, Peter responds with the right answer. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the one that all the Jewish Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in you. And Jesus is like, brilliant. You got it. Nailed it. And so Jesus begins to prophesy back to Peter, on this revelation of who I am as the Christ, I'm going to build my church. And then a few steps later, um, Peter or, or Jesus says, guys, I need to go and I need to lay my life down for all of humanity. I'm the son of man's going to, going to suffer. He says this here in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then, kind of that, kind of getting too big for your britches thing again, Peter takes Jesus aside. There are just some moments in the scriptures you'd like to be a part of. I mean, you know, I mean, I'd love to be there when God split the Red Sea, and I'd love to, you know, I'd love to see the guys in the fire, and I'd love to see Jonah getting spit out of a whale, but I would kind of like to see these moments, I'd like to see Peter pulling Jesus aside. Like, did he grab him by the arm? Did he put his arm condescendingly around Jesus and go, hey, we need to have a talk over here? Did he say, hey, Jesus, come, come here, come here. You, you need to come here. I don't know how he did it. All the scriptures say is that he pulled him aside. And then he begins to rebuke him. Peter. Because after all, he just got moved on by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus rebukes him back. I see your rebuke, I call and I raise. <laughs> and Jesus begins to put Peter in his place and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There's a lot that is right there, just right there. That when we approach the things of God simply from a human perspective, simply from our opinions, simply from, from the loci of our human experience, which is narrow, which is partial, which is incomplete, when we begin to form entire worldviews and, notice, when we begin to interact with God on the basis of our limited experience, Jesus needs to correct us. He needs to speak to us. He needs to get us back into alignment. 
He needs to, he needs to pastor our hearts back into a place of truth where we're moving in the right direction again. That's the purpose of correction. Correction should never be to overpower someone. You understand what I'm saying by that? Correction should never be a power card that someone pulls out just to say, hey, I have more authority than you or I know more than you or I wanna show you that you're wrong and I'm right. That's the wrong spirit of correction. Husbands and wives pay attention. In fact, moms and dads pay attention. The heart, the motivation, the purpose, the impetus behind correction should always be for the other person to mature into who God has called them to be. Correction is a tool that is a gift from God when we utilize it in the right spirit. There are many times in our marriage relationship where Christy will want to call me on something or vice versa, and we will feel the restraint of the Holy Spirit. We will feel the Holy Spirit saying, it's not time, she's not ready, he's not ready, you're not ready. There are times when I need to hold back on correction because I'm not doing it in the right spirit and I'm not doing it from the right motivation. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you wanna just correct somebody because it's vindictive. You wanna correct somebody because they are clearly wrong and you have been assigned, chosen even by God, placed by way of divine commissioning in their life to be the corrective rod of instruction. And no, no, that's not it. It is, Lord, make my motivation that to which what it is that you are working and building and forming in this person's life, I can serve them by serving you. And the words that I speak, though they may be hard, they will be used as a sword of the Lord to cut exactly where they need to cut to bring life-bringing healing. That is the spirit. That is the motivation behind why correction is given. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We said that correction is in the scriptures. We said that correction will come when we choose to follow Jesus. But I also want to say to you that correction comes in the context of belonging to a people. Correction comes by virtue of belonging to a people that is bigger than yourself. Correction comes by belonging to a church. Remember that in Revelation 2 and 3, that Jesus had a specific word. It was a word of, it was a word of instruction. It was a word of encouragement. But there was also a word of correction that he brought to all the churches save one in the book of Revelation. Jeffrey taught us on that uh, in the fall where he walked us through Revelation 2 and 3. And he walked us through what it meant to be a faithful witness and the word of the Lord to each of these seven churches. I want, I want you to keep in mind here that in those seven churches, and if you're not familiar with this, it'd be a good thing to read Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, and you will see how the voice of Jesus is actually speaking a correcting word to every one of these churches. Why did he speak that correcting word to each of those churches? Because in the context of Revelation, he wanted each of those churches to be faithful witnesses to Jesus until the end. He wanted each of those churches to correct something on a heart level or a behavior level or an attitude level that would empower them to remain faithful to the Lamb in the midst of severe suffering, in the midst of severe persecution. 
Sometimes God will correct something inside of us because he sees the end and he knows how this will hinder and hurt our lives if we don't address it. Uh, you know, a, number, a good example of this is, is when a bone is broken or put out of place. Uh, a couple of years ago, Kenya fell off of the monkey bars. And when he fell off, he landed on his shoulder and he popped his shoulder completely out of place. And so we went and immediately took him into uh, the doctor's office and they put him in a temporary sling. And I, 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 tempt, I was tempted with the idea of maybe just keeping him in that temporary sling long enough to see whether or not um, his shoulder would heal. And the doctor emphatically said, listen, if we don't deal with this, this will affect him the rest of his life. The rest of his life. And so I I cannot begin to describe to you what it was like as a father with my four-year-old boy and um, the excruciating pain when they, and they had me help pin him down to pop that thing back into place, it was one of the worst experiences as a father. And the only thing that I held on to was this thought, son, we're gonna walk through this pain as, as intense as this pain is so that your future, so that this will not damage you in the long run so that you will experience great joy and great life and great peace and great opportunities. So we're going to go through some correction right now. We're going to go through an intense moment of pain right now, but I promise you on the other side of this, there will be life. There will be life. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look with me at verse 1. This has taken way longer than I expected. (laughs) Oh, well, we'll just keep it here. Brothers and sisters, verse 1, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. Imagine that. Imagine your apostolic overseer. Imagine your pastor. Imagine your spiritual father or spiritual mother saying, I would love to address you as someone who lives by the Spirit, as a people that are Spirit-filled, as a people that honor the Holy Spirit. Now, remember... Historically and culturally, the church of Corinth was the most charismatic church of all of the churches that Paul interacted with. Remember that. This is the church where we understand what order in the spirit looks like. This is the church in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 where he talks explicitly about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, where he talks explicitly about the role of prophecy in the corporate body. So this was a very charismatic, spirit-filled, spirit-saturated church. And yet, and yet, flowing in the gifts, operating in the gifts, experiencing the presence of the Lord legitimately, and yet there was an area of immaturity in their lives. And here he says to them, he says, I can't talk to you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Worldly. Now, notice this. Hold, Hold your... Finger right there in chapter 3. And look with me at chapter 1, verse 2. This is Paul. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be his holy people. Now, what is Paul doing? As a father, he is speaking to their identity. As a father, he is speaking to who they are called to be. You are called to be sanctified in Christ and holy people of God. Now, to get us there, I've got to deal with some of this. 
to get you to where you are called to be, we've got to deal with some immaturity. We've got to deal with some things in you that aren't straightened out in your character, in your attitude, in your mindsets, in your belief systems, in your behavior. And so he goes on, verse two, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it yet. Indeed, you are still not ready. This is a harsh word. You're not ready. Imagine how that would feel week after week. We got up here and I was like, guys, there are revelations that'll blow your socks off, but you ain't ready. You ain't ready for that. And indeed, indeed, some of us are not ready, guys. And here, let me just, let me pastor you here for a second. Some of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we went, we went straight to calculus and we didn't get our times tables down. Okay. There are, I remember when I went to, when I was going through school, I wanted nothing to do with what was called general eds. You guys know general eds? You know, like, like, like humanities? Give me a break. Why am I sitting here staring at all these pictures and paintings of people? You know what? I look back now 20 years later and I wish I would have paid attention in humanities. I wish I would have had a better understanding of world history. I remember the, the, the first bad grade I got in college was in English. English, you kidding me? Yeah, that, that was where you guys were supposed to laugh. Yeah. I mean, in high school, in high school I, was, I, was, I was blowing it out the water in English, but then I went to another level. And had I assumed, had I assumed that I was, I was ready to start writing, you know, senior papers and senior theses and ready to start engaging with higher level material with a high school level aptitude or a high school level skill set, uh, I would have gone years and come to a place then where I would have to go back and retrain some muscles and retrain some skill sets. See, there's something inside of us that if we're honest with ourselves, guys, don't, don't check out here. There's something inside of us that we balk at elementary procedures. We don't like dealing with fundamentals. We, 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 we chafe at the idea of doing the simple things. And so that's why, whether it be in the natural or whether it be in the spirit, we'll gravitate towards things that feel more advanced. We'll gravitate towards things that feel more advanced because of what it produces inside of us. Because there's something inside of us that needs to feel that we are more advanced than we really are. Listen to me. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm, I'm helping you with this. In the realm of combat, in the realm of, of fighting, in the realm of sports, in the realm of competition, if you skip levels, you get hurt. And in some situations, you get killed, guys. You get killed. And some of us are picking fights with demons that we don't have the internal foundation and infrastructure of prayer and the word and doctrine and dogma and theology and biblical understanding and emotional groundedness and just being healed. And yet we, we run it out there trying to pick a fight with Baal and Jezebel and Leviathan. We just heard some words and, and listen, that's, that'll get you killed. There's a story of this in the scriptures where a couple of kids were running around going, hey, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. 
And those, this demon-filled kid went, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who the are you? And then they learned really quickly, they skipped a lot of steps. Because Christianity is not just about echoing the right things. It's not just about catching cliches and buzzwords and then trying them out. It is about you becoming the truth. It is about incarnation. It is about the slow, patient work, the ferment of the life of God transforming you from the inside out. None of us would take a, 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 a 10-year-old or even a 12-year-old and put them, uh, in, you know, playing playing kids in the uh in college football we wouldn't do that you know I'm a I'm a pretty big basketball fan many of you guys know that and I've I've noticed this trend now it doesn't apply to everyone there are anomalies but I've noticed that a lot of these young kids that are that they can't go straight from high school anymore but they're kind of doing a one and done deal so they're 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 dropping out of uh after the first year college ball and going straight to the NBA you know what's happening more and more they're getting injured Think about it. They're getting injured. Because you're going from playing 25 to 35 games a season to playing 85 to 95 games a season. Think about what that does on your body. Think about that. Think about going from playing at a certain level of intensity. You're having guys who are 180 pounds banging with you in the paint to guys who are now 250 and 260 pounds banging with you in the paint. It's a whole nother level, and we've skipped levels of process. Now, now, why am I going into all this? I'm trying to get into something in our heart. Be patient. Be patient. Now, I could talk to every parent in this room, and you would understand this. It is, there is something intuitive about a child that they want to skip steps and progress. It is actually a characteristic of immaturity. I said it is actually a mark of immaturity to be impatient with the process. And so this is your, this is where we stop and we go, have I been impatient with a process? Because if I have, it is a mark of immaturity. Now, verse three, you are still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. Listen now, there is still jealousy among you. There's still quarreling. You're still arguing with one another. You're, you're still getting, you're still making minor things the main things. You're still allowing minor things to be points of division and contention. This is what Paul is addressing right here. And you know what Paul calls this? He calls it immature. He calls it childish. He calls it worldly. This is Paul speaking. Last week's talk was, was given in the context of things and words and actions and behaviors and reactions and attitudes and mindsets that are all being done in a very immature manner, church. I had a, I had a dear brother this morning come up to me and he said, listen, I, I, just keep, I just keep getting prophetically all week long that we are allowing these, these trivial and minor personal disagreements and personal offenses to actually keep us from moving forward as a people. And I said, brother, you are absolutely right. That is exactly what is going on right now, right here. And so, and so what do we do with that? Well, we have to understand that at times 
when, when a pastor or, or someone steps into a prophetic vein or a prophetic flow, when they begin to address things, number one, I would say, don't take it personally. And I would say, take it personally. And here's what I mean by that. I would say, don't take it personally in the sense of don't process those things and receive those things as if someone has a personal offense or agenda against you, okay? Don't take it personally through your wounding. Don't take it personally through previous experiences. Don't take it personally through, through, through a hardened attitude of fear or insecurity. Don't take it personally if it doesn't apply. If you've been saying, I don't know, he's... T- He's been saying X, Y, and Z, and I've not really been seeing those things in my life. Hey, be free. Be free. Take it personally in the sense that never assume that when a difficult word or a corrective word comes forward that you're automatically exempt from it. Take it personally as in that we should, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, we should always go to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, is there something that you are pressing into me? Is there something that you're putting your finger on in me? Is there something that I have a blind spot in? We all have blind spots. I got so many blind spots in my life. And I'm I'm fully aware of the fact that I have blind spots. The only thing worse than having a blind spot is having a blind spot to the fact that you have a blind spot. Okay? You don't want that. You, You know, it's like the guy who's got stuff on his face and stuff in their teeth. And you're like, I want to help you. I don't need your help. I'm fine. I'm fine. So th- that's the heart and the spirit, and that's the motivation behind, behind what a lot of last week was, was given in. And so why don't we just, let me give you two more verses of Scripture, and I think it will help set us up for a good place for next week. Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind, please. Let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 12. And then we'll take a look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Proverbs 12, verse 1. I had a question that came forward in our Antioch conversation questionnaires. And uh, it's a good question. It was an honest question. And it was honestly a question that made me stop and it made me reevaluate. And the question was, are is the leadership of this church mad at us? And then the next question was, if they are, why? And, and let me tell you, beloved, I'm, I'm not mad at you, and I'm, I'm not mad at one person. I am mad at a spirit. I am mad at a spirit that is so sneaky and so divisive and so cutting and so ugly and so rebellious and doesn't care a lick about you. It doesn't care about the people who have left our church. That spirit does not care about them and that spirit does not care about this people. In fact, that spirit is vehemently opposed to the work of God in the people of God. The number one assignment of the enemy and I'll probably get into this next week unless the Holy Spirit hijacks my message again we're going to talk about the spirit of division because here's what I've come to understand we can't be a faithful presence of Jesus if we have immaturities and worldliness and divisive attitudes and divisive mindsets that are operating in us Do you realize that as you look throughout the letters of Paul, and I'm talking 
Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, even when he is kind of living out the last days of his life in a prison cell, writing to his spiritual son, do you realize that in every one of those churches, he was speaking against division? Every single one, guys. Every single one. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Then he says, but whoever hates correction is stupid. If my kids were here, they would say, Daddy, don't say stupid. And I would say, son, you're right. We'll never say stupid unless it's in the scriptures. So don't be stupid. You know, get, get, this, get this verse in you. Look at this. Whoever hates correction. Another way we could say this is a fool. Proverbs talks a lot about what the fool looks like. The fool, the scripture said, is just like a dog that returns to its vomit. Scripture says that's what a fool does. Proverbs says that a man who uh, doesn't listen to the counsel of any other people, that person's like a fool. Persons, he said, he said the fool is someone who harms himself and harms those that are around him. There's a lot of descriptions about what a fool is, and here's the root of it. The root of it very simply is, I have set my heart, I have set the disposition of my heart and my attitude against anything that is difficult to hear or different than what I'm used to. That, that right there is what he's saying. Guys, it's my job to expose you to things that you are not being exposed to in the realm of your own Christian life. That's my job. I would be unfaithful and irresponsible to you if I were not pressing you into things in the scripture that cause you to get a little ruffled. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31, then we'll come to the table of the Lord. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Do you know what a, a great study would be to do? Is just to go through Proverbs, just the 31 chapters of Proverbs, and note how many times... How many verses speak to the word listening, receiving, receiving correction, and the words that speak against that, not receiving correction? It is all over Proverbs. If you want to be wise, be humble, listen, be willing to receive correction. It's a heart posture. It's a heart attitude. Next week, we're going to talk about the spirit of unity and the spirit of division. And, and again, it's, it's in the context of being the faithful presence of Jesus in the earth. So I want you to come. I want all this next week. I want you to begin praying, tenderizing your heart, saying, Lord, if there has been any way where I've been partnering knowingly or unknowingly with a spirit of division, if there have been weaknesses in my character that have been accentuating divisiveness in this house and, and more importantly, when I'm interacting with people outside of, of this house, 
Lord, would you, would you correct me? Would you discipline me? Chastise me? Would you help me? Would you heal me? Would you strengthen me? Would you deliver me? Would you transform me? Church, let's stand to our feet this morning as we come to the Lord's table.